As we uh, look at our text this morning, um, this is kind of a PG sermon, so just heads up. (laughs) We're dealing with some stuff in the Bible that Paul directly deals with, and uh, sexual immorality in the church. And remember, the city of Corinth was much like, really, our society, really like where we live, right here in the the pit of California. Um, People back then, as they are today, basically have their own way of living, and they don't really care what the Word of God says. And the main goal in society, it seems, today is to fulfill the physical lust of the flesh. And, you know, you don't have to go far to understand that sexual uh, permissiveness is rampant today, just as it was back then. And so, just as it was back then, the church was not unaffected by that. You can't be unaffected by so much sexual promiscuity in our society. It affects the church. And 1 Corinthians chapter 5 is devoted to the problem of immorality, specifically sexual immorality, in the church. And so we have to address this because we teach through books of the Bible here, and we go through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And so Paul addresses this, and he, um, as serious as sexual immorality, that sin is. Paul is not so much addressing that issue here in this chapter as the issue, how can a church have this going on within its walls and them not confront it, not deal with it? And so he's really, you know, you think of sexual immorality, you think of the world and all the stuff that goes on out there. Well, that's a given. But Paul here, his intention really is to show us that this church in Corinth wasn't dealing properly with the immorality that was in their own congregation. Now, maybe that was because of the philosophical influence. Remember, we talked about how they allowed the philosophic the philosophy of the world to enter into the church. A lot of them came out of that background, but when they came into the church, they kind of dragged that in there with them. Um, Maybe it was because of their love of their own wisdom. We don't know. Whatever it was, they seemed to rationalize immoral behavior amongst those who were in the church. They kind of looked at it and shrugged their shoulders and said, well, Jesus paid for our sins. I guess, you know, we don't have to... Who am I to judge? That kind of attitude. Um, In any case, they didn't want to correct it. They didn't correct it. And that's why Paul is writing that. Even those who were not involved in immorality had become arrogant about it. They knew it was going on. They may not have physically been involved in it. But maybe they said, well, you know, we have freedom in Christ. You know, um, who are we to, to judge other believers? As many churches have that attitude today. And they became really... Uh, arrogant about this vice that was going on in the church. And so this chapter is not really directed uh, at, at unbelievers who were committing this sin. Really, it's not even directed to believers or so-called believers who were involved in this sin. 
it's really directed at the church. It's really directed at those who made up the body of Christ in Corinth. Um, and they stood by and they did nothing about it. In fact, arrogantly, they refused to do anything about it. And so from chapter 1, verse 10, all the way up to verse 21 of chapter 4, as we've seen, Paul's been dealing more with philosophical changes, sins, sins of the intellect, sins of attitude, you might say. And when those sins are prevalent, division was there amongst that church, clearly. And it was caused by groups following individuals rather than what those individuals said. But here in chapter 5, it focuses primarily on the sins of the flesh. But make no mistake about it, those sins of the flesh are not unrelated to those sins of the mind or of the heart. They're all related because all sin is related. See, we like to compartmentalize our sin. We like to say, well, I, you know, I have this problem and you know, I, that's why I do this or that's why I do that. Well, sin is sin, the Bible says. It doesn't matter if it's a sin of petty theft or the sin of homosexuality. Sin is sin. Sin in one area always makes us more susceptible to sin in other areas when we tolerate sin. And you see that very clearly in our own society with the rise of promiscuity and sexual sins in our own society. And so Paul's thrust here in this, in this chapter, chapter 5, is for discipline amongst those who are sinning within the church. Primarily, he has in focus the sinning church members who were constantly and continuously being promiscuous. And so he, first of all, before we really get into the text, I want to remind you just a little bit about what he said. I mean, what he said at the beginning there in verse, um, uh, in chap- back in chapter 4, when he said, you know what, I don't write these things to shame you. Remember, we looked at that in the previous weeks. I don't write these things to shame you, but I write them because I love you as a father loves a child. And so Paul is coming alongside this church, not in you know, a finger-pointing way saying, oh, you're, you, should, you should be disgusted with yourself, that kind of thing. No, he's coming as a loving father. And remember, when we went through those chapters, here's a man who loves, intensely loves this group of people in Corinth, even though they were messed up. Why? Because he was the pastor that founded the church. Uh, he wants them to know that he's going to tell them difficult things, hard things, because he loves them so much. And that's what any parent would do. Sometimes you have to tell your kids hard things, things they don't want to hear, things that grieves your heart, but you know they need to hear them. And when he wrote these, this, this epistle, um, this, this letter to the, the Corinthian church, he I have in mind another book that he wrote, the book of Titus. And he has something very important to to say in that book. If you look at verse 16 of Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, remember it's the same author, Titus chapter 1, verse 16, he says there, they profess to know God, but they what? Deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, 
unfit for any good work. What's he saying in that verse? Paul is trying to get across to those that he's writing to there in the letter to Titus. He's saying that doctrine and deeds need to go together. There's a lot of people, unfortunately, that know a lot about doctrine. But you look at their life and their lifestyle, it's completely opposite of what the doctrines teach. There's a disconnect. I felt that growing up in the Catholic Church. I felt, boy, you know, here I'm devoting myself to going to Mass several times a week as an altar boy and helping the church in different ways and all that. And then, you know, only to find out that one of my sisters wedding the priest back in the alley drunk and smoking a cigarette. Blew my mind. Just shattered me, my image of this guy. So I'd never seen that before. And I thought, wow, what, what, okay, this guy wears a collar, but re- what really separates me from him if he acts this way? And so there was a disconnect. There was a crisis in my faith personally until I came to know Christ. And see, a person's deeds tell their doctrine. That's what Paul is saying. It's, it's okay to sign off on, on doctrinal things and say, oh, I believe this, I believe that. But if you're living a life that's contrary to those doctrines... You're living a lie. And that's what was going on here in the Corinthian church. If you're living by faith and you love the word of God, and if you love God, it's going to show forth in your life. That's just basic Christianity 101. I've said this a million times, and I used to tell young people all the time, no Jesus, no change, no change, no Jesus. That is so true. You know, there's a lot of people that are professing Christ today. Churches are full of people that profess Christ. And then you look at their life, and it's totally disconnected from what they're professing on a Sunday morning. I mean, you can talk a lot about things, but your deeds are going to tell and speak much louder than anything that you could ever say. And so Paul was talking in Titus about ungodly believers, about believe the ungodly there in Titus, excuse me, unbelievers, that's what I meant to say, ungodly unbelievers. But when you go back to Corinthians, he's not talking about unbelievers here, which is just tragic. He's not talking about somebody who doesn't know Christ, he's talking to Christians in, in 1 Corinthians. And how tragic is it when Christians start to live like they don't know Christ, When they step away from the word of God and they say, well, I believe this, but their life tells them, tells a different story. And he has dealt with this several times here so far in this book. In chapter 3, we remember, he starts off, he says, brothers, I can't even address you as spiritual back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. But it's what? Even though they are spiritual, they're Christians, he's not saying they're not Christians, he's saying they probably are Christians. But he says, I can't address you as such because you're people of the flesh. He says, he calls them infants, babes in Christ. I mean, he points back to when they first got saved, that infancy in Christ. And he says in verse 2 of chapter 3, he says, look, I fed you milk. You know, you weren't a little baby Christian and I tried to teach you the doctrine of election. I took time and I fed you milk. I did the right thing as your teacher. I didn't feed you solid food, he says in verse 2. 
get ready, here comes the indictment of them. He says, for you were not ready for it. What baby would be ready for a big piece of prime rib or a steak? Here we go again with the food. I know, I know, I'll get off that. But they, they, they weren't ready for it. But then he says this, and even now you're not ready, in verse 2 there. You're still not ready. So he's really calling into question their maturity. Here they are years later. He spent 18 months with them, and then Apollos came and, and, and taught them even more. And now they're still not even able to receive the meat of the word of God. As a matter of fact, in, in verse 3, he even, he even goes further. He says, you're still fleshly. Your flesh is more prevalent in your lives than your spirituality, is what he's saying. What's he mean by that? He basically means that, you know what? You haven't understood how to give, how to have the victory through Christ in your flesh. Flesh is still winning the battle with you. And as a result of that, guess what happens? They had no testimony. They had no testimony. But 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 6, remember Paul says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, or that, that word among can also be translated in you. See, it wasn't that they were saying, oh, you know, we're not Christians, so we're acting this. No, they were claiming Christ. The testimony about Christ was confirmed in them. See, that was the problem. That's exactly the problem. The problem was it was confirmed within them, but it hadn't been confirmed outside of them. They were naming the name of Christ, but if you looked at that individual, there was no change. They hadn't affected the city of Corinth at all. As a matter of fact, the city of Corinth had affected them in an adverse way. And that leads to all kinds of things. He says in verse 3, remember, he says there's jealousy, there's strife, divisions. You're behaving in a fleshly and, and human way, he says. Whenever there's jealousy and strife, there's divisions. That's not in the original text, but it is in, they put it in the King James Version there, that word division. And it really means to stand away from others, exclude yourself from them cause jealousy, cause strife. He basically tells them, you know what? You're attaching yourself to preachers instead of the message that the preachers are giving you. You're looking at their personality saying, oh, I'm Apollos. I'm of, I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. I'm of, you know, Paul. And as a result of that, what happens? We learned last week they became arrogant. They became so arrogant that they almost thought they had already arrived spiritually. They said, the word of God, we, can, we don't need that. We can exceed what we have in this written thing. We can make up our own rules. We can become our own authority. We saw this last week. And when that happens, what happens? You're insensitive to sin. Sin no longer convicts. You become prideful in your knowledge. And the fifth thing we saw last week is that you become unable to display the love of God. So all that is background to where we end up here in chapter 5.
We're dealing here in Corinth with a church that is intentionally, willfully deceived. They're immature people, people who will not get under the doctrine that Paul has taught to them. And now it's beginning to seep out of the the deeds of their life. So you may be able to fool some people for some time, but you're not going to fool everybody all the time. Sooner or later, someone's going to see that flesh that you're hiding on a Sunday morning as you sit here so piously in the chairs. So what does he do? He points out here that, you know what, there's an issue. There's an issue in the church. Well, what's the consequences of fleshly living? Well, it tells us right there in verse 1. Let's read our text. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit, And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, as our Passover lamb has been sacrificed, let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of this world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Wow. What a, what a situation here. You know, when the word of God is not upheld, when the word of God is not obeyed by the body of Christ, there's not going to be any spiritual standard. There's not going to be any spiritual line. Remember back in Judges chapter 17, verse 6, it tells us when they had no king. It said, in those days there was no king in Israel. And what, what was the result? Do you remember? Everyone what? did what was right in their own eyes. That's what it says. They did what was right in their own eyes. 
See, that's the picture of the time back in Corinth. That's really the picture of our day today. When you strip the word of God out of our schools, when you strip the word of God out of our legal system, what do you have? You have no standard. All of a sudden, all the wrongs become rights, and the rights become wrongs. We live in an upside-down world. And you see that in the book of Judges. When you read the book of Judges, I mean, when you get over in chapter 17, there's a priest, a priest who has a wife and commits adultery. These are supposed to be God's people in the Old Testament, Israel, just like the church is supposed to be God's people today. That's how far they had come away from the word of God. Well, eventually, what happens to that that, that priest's wife that's committing adultery. Back in the book of Judges, it says she leaves him and goes to her father. Well, the man decides to go get his wife. So he goes to his father's house, and he stays there several days, bidding the father, and then they leave. Nightfall hits, so they go over to Gibeah, which is part of the tribe of Benjamin. And the custom of that day, when you would arrive in a city, you would stand by the city square, and someone would come along and take you into their home. Just say, hey, you need a place to stay? Oh, come on over. But nobody came. Finally, an old man came by and said, hey, you can't stay here all night. Why don't you come and stay at my house? You know the story. They went to his house and began to celebrate, just have a good time together. There was a knock on the door, and some of the men of Gibeah had come. And what did they want? Did they want the man's wife? No, they wanted the man. They wanted to have homosexual relations with the man, not the woman. And as a result, he wouldn't go out. And so the, the house guest, you had to protect your guests. Unfortunate, but he threw his wife outside. <laughs> Seems like a horrible thing to do. A different culture, different time, I guess. Well, they raped this poor woman until she died. And the next morning, her husband finds her body, takes her body, cuts it up into 12 different pieces, and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel as a reminder, hey, here's what's going on here. And it goes on and on and on. And you, you, you think, oh, how does this get so sorted and how mixed up? Because there's no standards. When you find somebody who is immoral, you will find somebody who is committing the act of idolatry. All idolatry is, is putting something or someone in the place of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is, is going to discover this in Corinthians. He's got reports. And that's why he says there in verse 1, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. That means it was known by a lot of people. There was a lot of people who knew this, who understood this. It wasn't just some secret sin that nobody knew about. Not only did the church people knew, not know about it, but obviously people in Corinth knew about it. How tragic that is for the cause of Christ. How tragic that is for the testimony of a church. And here it was just being done openly. They weren't even trying to hide it. I mean, a lot of times when you think of sexual immorality, you, you think of individuals in the world, and you know, I've even heard pastors who have a mixed up theology and 
say that, you know, they should all be burned or stricken down or whatever. And they condone a whole or condemn a whole lot of people that maybe are, are doing a certain sin and they, they have a kind of an issue with it to the point where they're being the judge and the jury. See, they don't realize that immorality, sexual immorality, is just one of the manifestations of the flesh. And the thing we need to be reminded is when we're pointing our finger at somebody, there's three fingers pointing back at us. Except by the grace of God, there go I. I mean, flesh is flesh. It's all sick. It's all sinful. But I think probably one of the, the sickest, most consequential sins is that of sexual immorality. The church had been very carefully taught by the Apostle Paul, by other pastors. They had no excuse here. They were well-grounded in Christian doctrine and morals. And even in verse 9, as we read, Paul apparently wrote another letter that's not recorded in the the canon of Scripture. He says there in verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. And from what I'm understanding, you're, you're still associating with them. It's still going on within the church. So the problem here that Paul is addressing is not new to the Corinthian church. But it was an issue that they were tolerating. And the the Corinthian church basically had a general reputation for immorality. When you mentioned that church, well, oh yeah, they're a bunch of immoral people. And the word of it had apparently come to Paul more than once. He had written to them previously. That word, sexual immorality or immorality, is, is porneia. We get the word pornography from it. It refers to any illicit sexual activity. It encompasses all sexual acts with somebody you are not married to. No matter what it is, whether it's adultery, sex before marriage, homosexuality, whatever. It's the big house where all those terrible sins live in. Well, we have to understand that this is a result of fleshly living within the church. And before we go further in Corinthians, I want you to turn over to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Because it's important that we remind ourselves of something here. Before we start pointing our fingers at everyone, we have to stop and be reminded of something. When you see the sin of immorality, A lot of people struggle with that. You know, it's it's really a sign of the flesh. But you know what? There's other signs of the flesh as well. We may be sitting here today not guilty of sexual immorality. But look at what Galatians says. Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 to 17. He says, but I say, he's talking to Christians, walk by the Spirit. Live your life by the Spirit of God. That you will not, what? Gratify the desires of the flesh. In other words, that's our bent. 
We're, we're, more, we're more apt to gratify, gratify the desires of the flesh than to walk by the Spirit. Do you understand that? When you wake up in the morning, you, you can't just do it on autopilot. If you go on autopilot every day, what are you going to do? You're going to end up gratifying the flesh. That's just, you're bent. Because you're living in a fallen world. Yes, you've been redeemed, you've been transformed by Christ, you have the Spirit of God, all that. But you know what? It's still there. You're still living in a, in a body that has fallen. And you're still prone to the temptations of this world. The sin and the devil. And so he wants, Paul wants them to understand that you know what? You're called to walk by the Spirit consistently, present tense, ongoing, as Christians. And you, you won't do what you want to do as far as gratifying the desires of the flesh if you walk by the Spirit. If you wake up in the mornings and you say, God, you know what? I'm just a sinner. Help me. Help me, Lord. I need your Spirit today. I have your Spirit. Take control of my life. Fill me. Control me. That's what that word means. In Ephesians, it's used... When he says, don't be drunk with wine or alcohol, don't be controlled by that, but be what? But be filled, be controlled by the Spirit of God that dwells within you. And so we're to yield our lives to the Spirit each and every day. The moment you're not yielding your life to the Spirit of God, guess what? You're either in sin or very close to sin because you're doing things your own way. You're not living this life under his power. You're living this life under your power. You're thinking, oh, I got this. Not a big deal. Sometimes, you know, I watch a war movie or something like that. Military movie. And, it's, you know, there's a lot of violence in those shows sometimes. The one thing I can't watch personally is any kind of promiscuity on the big screen. I just can't go there. Even innuendos, innuendos of promiscuity send my mind racing to places it should not go. And I'm always alarmed by individuals who call themselves Christians who can go watch an R-rated film who, which is filled with sexual promiscuity. Well, that doesn't bother me. Really? It should grieve your heart. It should bother you. If it doesn't bother you, you have a problem. I mean, you know, that, that's, that's the problem. That's, I very, very, very rarely even go to the movies unless it's a Christian film or something like that. But even then, I've learned, go right like a half hour after it says it's going to start because if you don't, if it's rated anything other than G, you're going to sit through some previews that you'd probably rather not sit through. You're exposing your mind, your heart to things that grieve the heart of God. And you're just kind of feeding that flesh. So he says here in verse 17, don't gratify the desires of the flesh. Don't feed the flesh. Verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. See, that's what I'm saying. Our bent is to walk away from God, not to God. Our bent is not to be filled with the spirit. We don't wake up in the morning going, oh, gee, I just, I can't, you know, I I just can't uh, think of sinning today. Oh, that would just be horrible. I would never do. No, we wake up struggling with sin each and every morning, if we're honest. 
And it's only when we are filled with the Spirit, when we're controlled by the Spirit of God, that we can not gratify the desires of the flesh. Because the desires of the flesh, he says in verse 17, are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. That's why Paul says, the thing I want to do, what? I end up not doing. But the thing I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. That's the conflict of the Christian life. You know, this pie in the sky, oh, you got victory in Jesus, you'll never have to deal with sin again. That's a lie. That's really a lie from Satan. Because it's not in the Bible. And it's a lie from Satan because if he can disarm you spiritually, he will. See, and it doesn't happen overnight. It happens in small little increments. I remember when Ambika and I lived down in the desert. We were in between churches and we were going to a rather large church. And the pastor there had been a youth pastor that I had known for years and had met him up at Hume Lake several times. and Just a very gifted guy, incredibly gifted, good looking, just, I mean, just really drew the people. And we're talking megachurch status. I mean, thousands of people went to this church. And, you know, I remember we went to a, they offered a marriage conference, study kind of a thing went on for like six weeks. So we thought, oh, we'll go to that. That'll be fun. And the first red flag I saw was when at this conference, you know, there's probably a thousand people there in this auditorium. The leader gets up and he starts teaching about marriage and I don't even know what he's talking about. But before I knew it, they're playing that song, the Macarena, and everybody's supposed to be doing the Macarena. Now, if you know anything about me, I just don't dance. I just don't like to dance, period. You know, I mean, and it was kind of fun. It, was, you know, it wasn't like done in a sinful way. But to me, I just thought, what, what is this? I mean, we're in church, and I'm looking around, and all these people, except me, I'm just standing there like an idiot, are doing this Macarena dance, and I didn't even know what it was. But, you know, they're all doing this thing, and I thought, wow, this is odd. This doesn't belong here. It just didn't feel right. And then I find out after we had moved on from that, that church, I found out that this, came to know that this pastor was in a hot tub, him and his wife, with another couple, and the women had no tops on. And someone took a photograph. Well, you can imagine what happened. Hit the news. Well, the desert sun down there, they ran with the news. And I'll never, I'll never forget my disbelief. I'm, I mean, this guy had father-daughter retreats at Hume Lake. I mean, just a, I thought it was a real credible guy. But when they asked him, you know, what were you thinking? Well, it's, it's not that big of a deal. I mean, these are friends, and this was my wife. And, but this was another couple. And they had no tops on. I mean, why? Well, we did have some wine and, you know, probably got a little carried away. I mean, that was his excuse. Not that it was wrong. And fortunately, the church applied church discipline and he was gone as their pastor and took a bunch of people and started another church. But I'm just saying, when you see things like that, it should alarm you because it happens all over the place. And then people sit back and go, wow, what happened? But see, it happens in little increments. And it can happen in little increments in our own lives as well. 
When the flesh wins, immorality is just one of the manifestations that come forth. And he says here in Galatians 5, he tells us what they are, verse 19. Look at what he says. Now the works of the flesh are evident. They're evident. He deals with moral sin first, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Then he deals with spiritual sin, idolatry, sorcery, enmity. Then he begins with relational sins, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions. He ends it in verse 21 with what we would classify as moral sin, envy, or drunkenness, orgies. He doesn't even complete the list, and he says anything like that. And he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things, what does he say? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean that you fall in one of these areas that you're doomed to hell. Because remember, he's, he's talking about walking by the Spirit. He's talking about living by the flesh. It's a lifestyle. This isn't a one-time thing here. And if you doubt that this happens within the church, I mean, you can just do a Google search and you'll find Christians that call themselves Christians and openly practice homosexuality without question. Well, this is the way God created me. And they don't have a problem with it. And they feel that we need to affirm that lifestyle as the church. And I just point that out because that's the most evident one in our society. Okay. But <laughs> you want me to say it again, Siri, or whoever you were? Um, but he says there, he doesn't, he doesn't stutter. He says, you're not going to inherit if that's your lifestyle. If that's, if that's, and that's no different than you having a lifestyle that, that sleeps with your neighbor's wife. So let's just make sure we get this in mind and, 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 we, and, and see the company that this flesh keeps. The sin of the flesh is key here. Immorality is just a consequence of that. It's just one of the ways, and that's the ways he's, he's focusing in on the Corinthian church. But it's amazing how we categorize sins. We have big sins, bad sins, like sexual immorality, but then we have other sins that we don't really deal with, and, and we're guilty of those as well. And they are just as much an evidence of the flesh as immorality is. If you're an angry person or strifeful person or jealous person, that's just as much evident that you're living in the flesh that being in a, involved in a sexually immoral relationship. See, when you walk after the flesh and the flesh is winning, there are other things that will accompany this kind of thing in your life. It may not be sexual immorality. You may have an issue with one of the other things that Paul mentions there. Whether it's moral sin, spiritual sin, relational sin, social sin. We'll turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because the first thing we need to see here is the problem which requires church discipline. The problem which requires church discipline. Now, Paul says in identifying the specific type of immorality 
that was in the Corinthian church, he says there in verse 5, or verse 1, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. And he says, of the kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. Actually reported. It's known by a lot of people. It's in a secret, as I said before. They weren't even shocked by this. They probably went, well, yeah, he's still in our church, this guy that's committing incest. See, when we cease to be shocked by sin, you know what happens? We lose a strong defense against it. That's what the enemy is striving to do in our own society. He's trying to numb us to sin. You know, I mean, it used to be on TV, you couldn't even show a bathroom, like with a toilet. It was illegal to show that in a movie or on a show. And you can see how it's just kind of whittled away at it, whittled away at it. And now we can watch sitcoms that are just incredibly promiscuous and not even think about it. Not even think about it. When we cease to be shocked by sin, we lose a strong defense against it. And that's what Paul is trying to point out here. He's talking about the notoriousness nature of their sin. It was known. The word immorality there refers to any illicit sexual activity. Well, look at the nature of their sin. He says it's not even named among the pagans. Well, who was this woman? When you look at this verse, it says it's, it's, it's the kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans, for a man has his father's wife. It's a present tense. It indicates it's an ongoing relationship. So he was having a relationship with his stepmother. That's why it says father's wife. That's what that means. It means that apparently his dad was married at some time to someone, and either by death or divorce, after they had this individual, he left his wife or she died. We don't know why. It doesn't say. But he ended up getting remarried. So this was this individual's stepmother. Because if it was his wife, it would have said his wife. But it says his father's wife. And so you have to understand that this was his father's wife, but not his mom. But it's still wrong in the eyes of the Bible. The term father's wife indicates the woman was not his natural mother, but had married his father after his mother had died or been divorced. So he has this intimate relationship with his father's wife. And it probably just didn't happen overnight. They probably got married, and here's this teenage boy, could have been whatever, who knows? You hear about it all the time. Somehow, they cross the line, and apparently, they're not married anymore, or 
it would have been the charge of adultery. So apparently the father and the stepmother had gotten divorced at some point because probably more than likely the relationship with the son. (laughs) Sorted, right? It's just crazy. But that's probably exactly what happened. And so they have this ongoing relationship. There's no charge of adultery, so they weren't married. They're living together. Now, it also says here, it doesn't really point out the the woman for discipline. You notice that when we read, it says, you know, he put this brother out of the church. Well, what about the lady? Well, it's more than likely, a lot of commentators believe, that they were not only immoral in their relationship, but they were unequally yoked in their relationship. They were in a relationship, it was a relationship between a Christian and a non-Christian. Um, over in Second Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, it tells us this, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. What does that mean? It means tied together, in agreement with. For what purpose has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Listen, if you're a single young person here today and you're a believer, you better make note of this. You better understand that, you know what, if you went out and you found a nice gal or a nice guy, and boy, they might be a really nice person. But if they're not a Christian, and I'll even go a step further, if they're not a a Christian who attests to the the biblical principles that we know about in the Scriptures, because anybody can call themselves a Christian, run. Run. I don't care how nice they are to you. Because as a Christian, you're going to be violating a very basic tenet that that, that God tells us. Don't be unequally yoked. Don't be unequally related to someone who is outside of Christ. It's very clear. Well, this individual, apparently, who's part of the church, so apparently he is a Christian, he violated that principle. Not only did he have a relationship with his father's wife. But now, apparently, they're together, they're not married, and the relationship is continuing. And so you can see that the nature of their sin was was pretty bad. And Paul says, you know what? Even the pagans wouldn't do this. Now, he's not talking about them not having incestual relationships. He's not saying that because they had incestual relationships all the time. But you know where it happened? It happened behind closed doors. I mean, because you just don't go around telling people that stuff. That's not something you tell your neighbor. And see, what happened here was the Corinthian church, it was known. And they still weren't ashamed. They were just like shrugging their shoulders going, well, who am I to judge? And Paul's losing his mind over this. And so they have this real problem here. This sin that is going on in their midst. And then you look at verse 2 and you see the pride which refused church discipline. It says, and you are arrogant. First of all, they had a lack of humility. Like I said before, they thought they had arrived. 
They were of the persuasion, hey, who, who's Paul? We don't need Paul. The Bible, we don't need the Bible. We're going to do our own thing here in the church of Corinth. And I'm sad to say that there's churches out there like this today. They fly by their own, their, their own chart. They, they do their own thing. And whenever you stop and say, well, you know what? The Bible says, hey, don't get all you know, fundamental on us now. After all, we have 12,000 people. That can't be wrong. Well, it's wrong if you're not sharing the truth with them. It's wrong if you're just tickling their ears. It's wrong if you're diluting the gospel to the point where it's, you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's wrong. And so here they had a lack of humility. They had a pride. He says, you're arrogant. He's called them that several times. We've seen that before. And then we see there a, a lack of, of sorrow because he says, ought you not rather to mourn? This is not something to celebrate, folks. This is something that God takes very seriously. And, you know, in the Old Testament, there are occasions when people were involved in sexual immorality. And I don't have time to go into all of them now, but you can look them up on your own. But, I mean, it's a very serious thing to the point of death with God. It wasn't something God just shrugged his shoulders and said, oh, well, you know, boys will be boys. <laughs> no. And that's why it's, it's always grievous when you hear someone speak of sexual immorality or even sexuality in a joking manner. Because it's not something to be joked about. It's held very high esteem in God's book. So he says, this is going on, and you're not mourning. You're, you're just kind of celebrating like nothing's wrong. There's a lack of humility, a lack of sorrow. And then it points out there there's a lack of discipline. He says, let him who has done this thing be removed from among you. When you think of that, that's kind of scary. From removed from the church. Now remember, this person is claiming to be a believer. They're claiming to know Christ. Maybe the, the father and the, the mother and the son all came to church together at one point. And then the stepmother and the son started hanky-panky there on the side. It ended in a divorce of the, the relationship. Are they all still coming to the same church and this is okay? <laughs> now he's living in sin with his stepmother and these Corinthians are not dealing with it even though Paul warned them over and over again what should be done. See, a church that does not mourn over sin, especially sin within its own fellowship, beloved, is on the edge of spiritual disaster. When you just wink at sin, you're on the edge of spiritual disaster, not only as a church, but as an individual. Because sin is very, very serious in the eyes of God. Sin is for what Christ went to the cross and died, that death that we celebrate all the time. He went to pay for your sin. That shouldn't give us a license to go sin more. That should cause us pause and to realize the cost whenever we do sin, 
that Christ went through for us. So they had a pride that refused church discipline. It says here the procedure for church discipline there. It says, let him be removed from among you. Let him be removed from among you. This is Paul's persuasion. He says, therefore, though I'm absent in the body. Remember, he wasn't there with them. They thought, ah, Paul's not here. We can do whatever we want. No, no, no. He says, I am present in spirit. I'm just as much a part of your church as I was when I founded it. Because we're all one in Christ. I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. He's like, you, you need to own this. You need to deal with this. You can't just wink an eye at this. And he says, you do that through the power of the Lord. Verse 4, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus. You know, church discipline is never a fun thing. It's never something that should be delighted in. It's never something that should be, oh boy, we get to do church discipline this Sunday because someone's in sin in our church. No. There's a process. Matthew tells us that process. When you see a brother or sister in sin, what are you to do? Are you to go tell the pastor? No. It says you're you're to go to them as a brother or sister in the Lord, and you're to confront the sin that you see in their life. And if they don't hear you, then you take somebody else with you. And if they still don't hear you, then you tell it to the church. And if they still don't repent, the the goal of church discipline is always restoration. It's always restoration. And it doesn't happen overnight. Sometimes it takes months, maybe even years, to go through the process of church discipline. But eventually, if they don't listen, what do you do? You put them out of the church. Why? Because the church is is pure. It's, It's to be holy. It's to be protected. And when you just wink at sin and say, well, I know he's... You know, he's living with his his neighbor's wife, but, you know, well, what are we going to do? He gives a lot to the church, or he does this, or he does that. No. You you, You can't afford not to deal with that. And that's what they were doing. They were just winking their eye at this, thinking, well, Well, verse 5 here tells us the purpose for church discipline. He says, you are to deliver this man to Satan. What? What in the world is that? That sounds really serious, doesn't it? I mean, now remember, we're talking about somebody who's part of the church. You're talking about a brother, a sister in Christ. What does the church have to do here? You have to remove them. You remove them. Why? Because you have to protect the church. It's not about that individual, it's about the church. To deliver such a one to Satan. And what's that? You, you, you know, seance and you know, whatever committed. No. Basically, think about who is the prince of the power of the air? Satan, right? I mean, he's in charge of, under God's sovereign hand, in charge of everything that we see, all the sins, all that stuff. He's running the show. And that's what troubles me when you hear certain people, you know, I bind Satan. It's like, what? You bind him? Who do you think you are? And if you do bind him, say you are successful in binding Satan. Well, who unbinds him? Because he's still running around. He's still creating havoc. 
So I guess the binding didn't work after all. That has nothing to do, that verse that they used there, had nothing to do with that at all. Context, keep things in context. So what does this mean, you deliver him to Satan? It means basically you take him from the church and you say, you know what, if you're not going to act like a Christian, you've been confronted with your sin, you will not repent, you know what, you're no longer welcome here. We're delivering you to the world. Get out. And you turn them loose. That's tragic. Tragic. And that's the, the consequences of continuing in that sin. What's he say? Why do you, you put him out? So that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. But what? The destruction of the flesh. The destruction of the flesh. You put him out. You turn him over to Satan. You basically just say, hey, you know what? Until you repent, you're not welcome here. And hopefully, at that point, because those are strong things, you would have to be very, very steep in your sin and very, very arrogant and stubborn not to respond to church discipline if you're a Christian. I don't know how that happens sometimes, but I guess sometimes it does. What's the destruction of the flesh? It's basically God's, God's chastisement. God's chastisement on that individual. Now, this isn't saying that whenever anybody's sick, they're being chastised by Satan. It's not teaching that. But in this case, it's saying, you know what? When you have someone who's a brother or sister in Christ, and they're, they're steeped in their sin, they're unwilling to repent, you're to put them out into the world system. Turn them over to Satan. Let God deal with them through Satan. You say, what does that mean? You don't think God can use Satan to discipline us? He does it all the time. Under his sovereign hand. He allows things to happen to us sometimes. You know, we scratch our heads. We go, why did this happen? Well, sometimes it's a form of God disciplining us. And you can't jump to the conclusion that, well, all physical illness is a form of discipline because that's not true because the Bible doesn't teach that. But there are certain situations where that is true. And so, in the end... I mean, if there's a good point to make here, it's the end of that verse 5. Even though he's delivered over to Satan, even though his flesh is going to be destroyed, either by God or by their sin or by whatever means, the reason is what? That his spirit may be saved. That's why we, we really believe this person's an individual who's a Christian in the day of the Lord. Why? Because we're not saved by what we do. We're not saved by our actions. We're not saved because we never commit a sin. Why are we saved? We're saved by the grace of God. We're saved because, you know what? We need saving. <laughs> because we were one of these people. You know, we, 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 in the church, we have a tendency to forget from whence we came. And so many times we pronounce judgment on all the the unsaved people in the world. And what Paul's problem with the Corinthian church is saying, you know what, you're not even willing to pronounce judgment on the people who's part of your congregation. Who's part of the body of Christ. 
You're unwilling to deal with that. How are you going to deal with the sexual immorality in the world? Well, why the church has to do this, he tells us, it's basically that his, the Spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. Remind all believers the eternal state of our salvation. We're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ. And so he says here, basically, you know what? It's, it's due to the nature of sin that you're boasting at all. He says in verse, verse 6, he says, your boasting is not good. This is not something to boast about. This is not something to joke around about. He says, don't you know a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In other words, you just need a little bit of that stuff, and it, 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 it infects the whole, the whole body. That's why the purity of the church is so important. That's why church discipline is so important. That's why as elders and pastors, we take very seriously those who God has given us charge over in the church. It's not something you just blindly walk into. It's a, really a horrific responsibility. So he says in verse 7, let out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Remember, he's talking to a Christian. He's, saying, he's basically saying, you know what? Why don't you get your act together so you can have a Christian testimony out there in the world? Everybody's laughing at you. They're saying, oh, look at, there goes, there goes so-and-so to church. Yeah, he's, I know him. I know how he acts at work. I know how he acts after work. I know what he does when he's on those conferences out of town. But, oh, he's a deacon in the church, or he's an elder in the church, or he's this, or he's that. They have no testimony because, like I said, their testimony is only from within. But their deeds haven't expressed themselves in godly living. This is very sobering. That's why he says, as you really are unleavened in, in Christ, there is no sin. All your sins are forgiven. You have been declared righteous before God, even though you're not. See, that's the wonderful thing about salvation. That's what should draw us to Christ. If you're an unbeliever here today, don't think you have to do a a bunch of stuff for God to love you. You don't. He, He already loves you from eternity past. And he's provided for you a way out. He's provided for you salvation through Christ. If you'll just bow your knee to him, if you'll just cry out to him, if you'll just admit that you need a Savior, he's the only Savior to be had. Pray out from a sincere heart, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Show me the error of my ways. Help me in my unbelief. then you can be saved in the day of the Lord. You won't be boasting about your sin anymore. You won't be carrying around that leaven anymore. Verse 8 proves to us that the, 
The death of Christ demands holiness. He says, let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That's why Christ came, so that as a church we can live in a way that's honoring to him, that we can live in a way that our testimony lives up to not just what we claim, but what we live. Next week, we'll continue and finish off this chapter. I kind of did this, hopefully, in two messages, so by the time the kids are out, because the teachers are taking a break for July (laughs) when they're here, we're over this (laughs) somewhat, so uh, it'll be a little safer for them to be up here. But, um, you know, it's very serious. It's a very serious, serious portion of Scripture, and whenever Christ talks about his church, whenever Paul talks about the church, Whenever Paul talks about sin invading the church, it's always a very, very, very serious thing. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for um, Paul's words, not only to the Corinthian church, but even to us. Lord, help us never to not take sin seriously. Help us never to not confront it on a personal basis, on a church-wide basis. Father, I know that when we are shocked by sin, when we stop to be shocked by sin, when we cease being shocked by sin, we lose the defense that we have against it. And then Satan can just have his way. And Lord, it it might just be a, a glance, a look. It starts as something flirtatious in the workplace. I pray that we would run from such a thing. Lord, that we would, as men, as women, that we would guard our hearts, that we would not put ourselves as Christians in situations that may be compromising in any way. Because we know, Lord, that's our bent. We will run to that sin as quick as we can. Father, we pray that your restraining spirit would convict our hearts and keep us true to you. If there's any here today who's yet to put their faith or trust in Christ, I pray that they would cry out to you even now, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. Help me to understand what this man is saying before me today. And you too can understand what it means to be part of the body of Christ and to have your sins forgiven and be promised that your spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.